Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Monday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We've got our Sunday SEC football conversation with Weldon Rodenberg. Talked a lot about Ole Miss's win over A&M, Quinshawn Judkins, the running game, uh, Jackson Dart's performance and the kind of win that tested the uh, DNA of this team as well, and kind of a look forward ahead to what's to come in two weeks with a big one against Alabama. So good conversation. I think you enjoyed it. And of course, Soccer Corner, the fastest growing segment on American soil at the end. So buckle up. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you, the podcast is brought to you by Ray Stevens, real estate with agent with Square Real Estate in Oxford. Whether you're looking to buy or sell in the Oxford area, Ray has you covered. He loves putting people in homes that they will cherish forever, whether you're looking for a two-bedroom condo or a five-bedroom dream house. He can help you find something that will fit your needs. He loves providing individual service to each and every client. He understands your needs, and he's going to find you some options, whether you're looking to buy, looking to sell. He can pair you with the buyer if you're looking to sell and move to another place in Oxford. Maybe you're looking for a extra weekend home Ole Miss eight and one things are pretty good with the football team tired of paying for hotel rooms having to find other places to stay just go buy your own place Ray Stevens you got it right here a podcast it uh podcast real estate agent that's going to take the hassle out of that for you all you have to do is give him a call at 601-624-4824 the home buying and selling process can be complicated. Let Ray take the hassle out of that for you. Let him provide you some options based on what you need, based on your price range, and boom, he'll get you set up. Old Miss guy, known Ray a long time. Wouldn't send you to people I don't trust. Check him out. Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate, 601-624-4824. Give him a call. Tell him we sent you, and he'll get you set up. 601-624-4824. Broker number is 662-832-7777. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gaming handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix and all, an advanced monitoring mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the st- sports handicapping industry. Skybox, rolling into this NFL Sunday, 20-9. and nine. You know who isn't 20-9 and nine in their last 31 NFL games? Probably you. They're on a 21-9 and nine run now after the London game. How about that? We'll get some nor- more numbers for you later in the week. They offer two free play winners if you listen to the Friday podcast. Ohio State, Penn State over, Miami, UVA under. Boom, Skybox is rolling in the money right now. 62-unit weekend in NASCAR the other weekend, up 200 units on the year. It's time for you to stop paying the bookie. Go on to skyboxsportspicks.com, find a pick package that fits your price range, and then use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off. They send it to you in a nice email, color-coded spreadsheet. Boom, got the units out there. You are set. You are more equipped to make money than you are five minutes before using Skybox. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use that promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off any purchase. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg on the Rebels' 31-28 win in College Station. All right, we now welcome on Ole Miss football correspondent, or Rippy Wright's football correspondent, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Weldon Rodenberg. Ole Miss hangs on for a 31-28 win in College Station to get to 8-1 and on the year. Strange game. Um, I don't know. In a lot of ways, it played out exactly like I thought, and then in other ways, it didn't. I don't really know exactly what that means, but it felt like a marathon 
of a game. What uh, what's up? How are you? Uh, do I, we both watched a bunch of football this weekend. It sounds like. Yeah, I think it was both one of, one of those weekends for both of us where you just you start at 11 a.m. on Saturday. You know, you ended at 10 p.m. on Sunday. It's my favorite kind of weekend. I got to see a lot, which I haven't been able to do a ton this year because of just, you know, how it is, weddings and different events and being out of town. So it was nice to be able to kind of sit back and relax and just watch a lot of, you know, I would say even semi-bad football, uh, especially on Saturday. But uh, it, it was a nice weekend for sure. Yeah, I did the exact same thing. I think I left my house once the entire weekend that didn't include like getting food. I apologize for absolutely nothing either. It was quite nice. Watched a bunch of football. Um, And then, I I mean, it was such a long day. Like the, by the time the 630 game got there, I was like, damn, I'm kind of exhausted from doing nothing. I don't really know how that's possible. Maybe it's just the terrible shape I'm in. But by the time that game ended, I was like, geez, what a long day of watching football. Yeah, but that, that, and there was no good games on. Yeah, that's like another all day. There was like not a game that kind of really caught your attention. You were like, okay, I could just kind of use this one to, to parlay into the night games. I mean, every game in like the early windows was kind of crap. Yeah, and I thought the night games would be better. I, I thought um I really thought Kentucky and Tennessee like would probably be a little more scrappy than people gave it credit for. That would not was not. We can get to that in a little bit. But yeah, you're right. There just weren't very many good games on for the entirety of the day. Um, you know, you can make an argument, Ole Miss and uh Texas A&M might have been the most competitive one. And I guess we'll just get right into it. Ole Miss wins 31 to 28. Um, They're down 14 to 10 at halftime. This game felt like it could have gotten really, really squirrely there um, for a large portion of, you know, that first quarter really to about, I guess, about eight minutes to go in the third quarter when Ole Miss went down after they got a stop and scored on a very penalty-aided drive. But credit to them, they took control – of that game, this is one of those I have trouble knowing where to start. Like, I mean, I had a couple of notes, but there's a million different places you could start. I guess I'll just get a macro thought for me. What did you think? I, I To add a couple of thoughts myself, I thought they won a game in a tough environment. Um, I thought they showed a lot of mental fortitude. That game could have gotten real weird at several spots. I thought the defense rebounding was nice. I don't think it changes my opinion of what this team like is and isn't, but you know, that's a character building win. That'll put some uh, whiskers on your, uh, on your face for the lack of a better phrase. I, I I thought it was an overall a positive, despite some of the deficiencies with this team still being pretty glaring. Yeah. I think all of that is fair. Uh, we talked a little bit last week, you know, kind of looking ahead to this game, how if you're old miss and you, you know, where you think your program's at, where you think your team is at, this is a game you really didn't have a lot of excuses to lose. And uh, we kind of were talking during the game, and I was not very confident. Me neither. Uh, they were really struggling to tackle A-Chain. They weren't getting to Weigman, Wegman, whatever his name is, uh, very easily. I mean, he was like eight for eight on his first eight passes. Um, Ole Miss just did what they always do and score in like literally a minute and 50 seconds. And then they kind of hit that lull that we've seen throughout the year. And I just didn't know if they are going to be able to get out of it. But um, honestly – the defense really in kind of the middle eight of the game really stepped up and kind of bogged him down. They began to get pressure on the freshman. He began to kind of, you know, you could see the the young rookie in him here and there. And then they just kind of made plays down the stretch. Uh, I mean, Ole Miss is a better football team than Texas A&M, uh, but they're not necessarily – they're probably not a more talented team than them. And going on the road and, you know, credit to the Colts, you know, the cool the Kool-Aid uh, was was flowing in, in, in College Station. That place was completely full, which is a credit to them, honestly. 
uh, it's not easy to win on the road in the SEC. And they did. They uh, really, except for kind of a late touchdown, they kind of handled them in the second half. Uh, so it was impressive. I, I've always been pretty critical at this team, in my opinion, has not played great on the road in the past two years. And I'm not sure they played a fantastic football game last night, but they did what they needed to do to kind of gut out a win, which I think was really, really important uh, for this team and really just kind of for the trajectory trajectory of the program uh, for sure. Yeah, I think that's well said. And you talked about we were texting during the game, and I mentioned that kind of halfway through the first quarter stretch to about midway through the third where it looked like it could have gotten off the rails for Ole Miss. Um, Ole Miss goes down and scores – on their first possession, just like literally they always do. They are always incredible on script. My uh, my girlfriend's watching it back in Dallas, and she like, texts like, hell yeah. And I was like, no, no, it always happens this way. Um, Just give me like 15 minutes of game time. Let's see where this ends up. And, of course, it ended up in a predictable place because A&M answers with the drop of their own. Ole Miss gets I – th- I can't remember if it was a three and out or they got a first down, and A&M goes right down the field again. And it's at that point I'm thinking, oh, no, because – you know, they elected to receive A&M gets the football after halftime, you know, with the way the defense was playing it, it almost felt in a lot of ways. And it was funny reading some of the message board stuff, which happens every game. If Ole Miss gets down, everyone's, you know, fire everybody. Oh, yeah. this team. Fire everybody. Weiss, Partridge, Knicks, you know, they, they played the hits pretty quickly. <laughs> yes. And I'm not even just like making fun of it. Like, it's just, I mean, that's what fans do, right? The fan stands for fanatic for a reason, but in like the mental roller coaster that was this game when looking through it or thinking about it through an old Miss lens, I, I was kind of there. I wasn't going to go f- fire off like a message board post, but I was like, oh, wow, like could this get really bad? It, it, in some ways, the way AM moved the football down the field the first two drives with the freshman third string quarterback, albeit very talented, um, and that running game, it, it almost got to the point where it felt 2020 esque, where I was like, you know, Ole Miss goes three and out, and A&M scores on that second drive to go up 14-7. to seven. I was like, this this feels really bad, and they don't have Matt Corral at quarterback. Like, they don't have that quick strike, air-out offense. It was starting to feel mm-hmm. 2020-esque in the sense that they cannot stop the run. Honest to God, they're not generating that many third downs in that point of the game. Like, this team is not built necessarily to win shootouts, given that their offensive identity is so centered around the ground game. I, I thought at a point in that game – um, that it could have almost gotten out of hand. I was like, are they going to lose this 28 to 10 or something like that? It was, you know, Ole Miss comes back and wins it, and, and that's a credit to them. But it, it really felt like on the brink um, yeah. of being seven and five and like how bad does this get for a little bit. And that's where you have to give De- Partridge and the defense credit. Um, A&M finished this game with 122 rushing yards. I believe like they only had 27 in the second half. That's what, I, that's what I saw on Twitter today, only 27. And some of that towards the end is A&M chasing the game, but it was just the the ease with which A&M was running the football. They were averaging 6.2 yards a carry at the end of the first quarter. It was like five and a half after halftime. I would say midway through the second quarter, I think it was somewhere around seven. It looked really bad, but to Ole Miss's credit, they fixed it. I don't, I mean, they went to, it seemingly looked like they went to a couple four down fronts. Um, and that helped a little bit. But just the ability to make in-game adjustments was impressive and proved to be the difference in the game from like a from a defensive perspective because, again, it could have gotten weird. I mean, it gives Fort down 14-7. to seven. Ole Miss looks like it's struggling offensively. It's, it's weird that we talked about this. I think we sent it both texts at the same time. Like, 
running game's not there. Well, you look up and they finished with 390 yards on the ground, like 399 sack adjusted. But there were points in that game where they were struggling to run the football yeah. and not much else is happening. It, it felt close to A&M really taking control of that thing, and they deserve credit for kind of staying in it and not blinking. No, I mean, Kiffin said it in the post-game press conference that I was watching. He, you know, They started off in that three-man front, A&M did, uh, kind of similar to what Ole Miss runs. And then, I mean, they got out of that third drive of the game and went back to four down and was really kind of stifling the run game. You know, they were running just for one yard on first down, one yard on second down. They were in third and long, what felt like like three or four drives in a row. Um, so, no, it really wasn't there for, for at least a quarter and a half or so. Uh, but finally, once they were able to get the play action working a little bit better, they kind of hit Mingo on the long ball. They had to begin to uh, really respect dart running, dart throwing. Then finally, slowly but surely, Judkins and Evans were able to hit them inside and outside. And then kind of like the game flow-wise, they were able to really mix things up uh, a little bit more. Uh, than they usually have been able to. Uh, and they just kind of started to wear them down. I mean, this team, you know, for a lack of maybe depth and, you know, playmakers in certain areas, um, definitely not running back, but uh, at receiver, they, they know exactly who they are. And, you know, for better or for worse, they're, they're going to run the football to win games and then use darts sparingly and play action to, to kind of make them, make them pay for, you know, committing everybody to the run. And they're not going to change it. And, you know, part of that can get a little frustrating in games sometimes, especially if the defense doesn't play well, then it's like, man, you're really struggling to kind of play catch up with the way we play offense. But in that game, when they were able to finally stop A&M rolling and they just slowly but surely was wear were wearing them down, I mean, that that's how this team wins football games. And they know it. And they're not really going to change it. So at least they have an identity in, in, in this kind of game where you're the better team, you're the better coach team on in my opinion, both sides of the ball, uh, that, that's how you win. Yeah, and the point in the game where it seemed to turn a little bit, where oh, it's 14-7, to 7, Ole Miss drives at 57 yards down the field. They're around like the Texas A&M 18, and they've got a fourth and short right before the end of the quarter. I didn't think they were going to snap it. I thought they were going to go for it. I didn't think they were going to snap it. I thought they were going to maybe try to draw A&M offsides, let the quarter run down. And then just try to find something, you know, that you feel pretty comfortable with that'll work to get that fourth. And I think it was like somewhere around three or two, somewhere in there, maybe it was a yeah. quarter. And they run a misdirection that kind of has, I think it was Watkins who was lined up as the tight end, um, kind of like try to do a drag, like a drag thing, get him out, roll into the flat to the short side of the field. But the only problem with that, it was an obvious running situation. And I don't know if this was on purpose. It seemed to be on purpose, just looking at it again this morning, based on like the way he moved. They ran him behind the line, the offensive line, and behind the line of scrimmage. And the offensive line got pushed back so far. Uh, Watkins falls down because he runs into the entire right side of the offensive line, basically. I didn't hate the decision. I didn't necessarily hate the idea of what they were trying to do. I just didn't love the fact, like the way it played out and how they arrived at it. And then A-Chain breaks off a 31-yard run to start the next drive. And at that point, I'm thinking, that was really when I was like, all right, this could go really, really badly for them. But to their credit, they finally stopped A-Chain, what felt like for the first time all game, for like two yards on first down. They blitz uh, Weidman or Wigman, however you say it, on second down. He throws an incompletion. They get to like third uh, – they stop A-Chain on like the fourth and two and not to go through play-by-play play the whole game, but I thought this was an important moment. Then they snuff out a short pass in the backfield 
and they get the ball back. And they only generated three points on the next drive, but that felt like stopping the floodgates from coming on. And that also felt like a seminal moment in the game where they kind of realized, okay, this whole letting Connor Weidman sit back and dropping seven or eight and letting have this freshman have all day to throw is not working. It seemed in that moment, and maybe it didn't come in that moment, that they they kind of realized, oh, when you make this kid speed up and make quicker decisions, he's not nearly as good. And I, I texted you about this last night. I thought it was hilarious on the broadcast they were talking about. I think one of the coaching staff, uh, the co- guys on the to A&M coaching staff, maybe been Jimbo, compared Weigman to Dak Prescott. And they're like, oh, really? Like he, he moves sneaky well. And then like the four to six plays after that, <laughs> Weigman ran out of bounds for like one yard where he didn't get the edge. He tripped over somebody and then threw one away when he had a running lane. I was like, I don't know about this. This guy clearly doesn't want to run. And I think they, once they kind of figured out the whole Weigman or Wigman thing, like just go after him. They did a better job of getting home or getting close to home when they did blitz. I thought in this game than they did versus LSU. I thought that really changed the game when they started making him make quicker decisions in the passing game, which I guess with the complimentary football sense of it, they also had to be better against the runner. It wouldn't have mattered. And Jimbo really strayed away from running a chain toward the end of the second quarter in the second half because of that. And it ended up being a perfect storm. So I thought that was a seminal moment in the game. And I thought that's when they finally figured out, okay, we need to make this kid make quicker decisions. And they were kind of toothless after that. I know they drove down later in the game, but that was you know, Ole Miss playing soft. They're chasing the game. When it really mattered in nut-crunching time, they were kind of toothless offensively in that second half, A&M was. Absolutely. I mean, Ole Miss kind of started walking up a linebacker, whether it was Coleman or Sistrunk or Keys, and uh, kind of just like, you know, run blitzing that offensive line and uh, – it was really effective. I mean, they had two offensive linemen out. They had another guy that got hurt, like, I think during the game. And I think Ole Miss could feel that they, they really had a vulnerability there and that if they played, you know, kind of attacked them instead of playing catch, uh, you know, kind of on both sides of the ball, that they were going to have some um, some effectiveness there. And, I mean, Weidman, once he got sped up, uh, he was a completely different player. Now, he had a great night. I mean, undeniably – very impressive start for a true freshman. Uh, you know, I know Ole Miss's defense is kind of hit or miss, but I mean, he was really, really effective early and then slowly, but surely they started pl- giving him some different looks and he, he really struggled. Um, not even completing passes, just he wasn't hitting him for, for the chunk plays, the explosive plays, everything was kind of beginning to become underneath. And then a credit to Ole Miss, they, they were pretty good, you know, especially kind of in the middle that second quarter towards the end of the game of tackling, whereas the, the first quarter and a half was like, oh, shit, A-Chain's going for 300 because it was not great. You know, they were there and just, like, not making the plays, and that's honestly even worse than not being there because that's going to be the case all night. Uh, but they played really well. I mean, it's it's not easy to win on the road in this league. You know, A&M showed, to the credit to the players, showed a, a ton of fight for – you know, all we've heard about kind of the the locker room issues they've had there, the suspensions they've had there, uh, they played their ass off. Um, and they've got obviously a lot of talent. Lane made sure to to let everybody know that um, before, during, and after the game. So, no, I mean, it, it was a credit to really both sides of the ball for just sticking with their plan, trusting, you know, the coaching staff trusting that this was the way that they were going to need to win this game. And eventually it kind of worked out probably exactly – you know, in your best case scenario of how it would have worked out. Yeah, it did. And and you talk about the defense making adjustments and 
early in that game when they had the running game going, it seemed pretty simple. AM did a ton of RPO stuff and A Chain was having a lot of success. Then it was the classic play that you see where the RPO where you hit the tight end over the middle. I mean, how many of those first eight Wigman completions were over the middle where he pulls it out of the running back stomach and the tight end or a slot receiver's running wide open. At yeah. some point that changed because they would have just destroyed Ole Miss all night. I mean, Jimbo, I know people like to call him an idiot. He, he's not an idiot in that sense. Something changed. I don't know what they did. Maybe it was creating negative plays, maybe getting them in more obvious passing situations. But whatever they did and tried to do, whether maybe it was the four-man front stopping the run, that really kind of cut away at AM's bread and butter. And you look at it, AM scores on the first two drives of the game. We just went through that turnover on downs, which I thought was a crucial point in that game. The Ole Miss defense forced five straight punts after that. They forced two straight punts to end the second half and then three to pitch a shutout in the third quarter that allowed Ole Miss to take control of the game. And for all the the shit this defense has taken, and most of it rightfully so, I'm not necessarily kind of going, you know, see, oh, 100%. Not they were wrong. They oh, were yeah. right. They, they, they got it together, and it's also worth mentioning they are not completely healthy. Uh, Troy Brown was on a pitch count. Said Johnson was clearly on a pitch count. They were, they're having to do a lot more of the, the – I've been calling him Cardi Coleman all year. The broadcast keeps calling him Kyrie. It's K-H-A-R-I. What, what's, we're not going to get into phonetics corner here, but what, what's going on there? That's like the third guy this year I've had issues with that with. Do you, yeah. Are we right? Or are they it's Kari. It's Kari Coleman. I know that there's two broadcasts in a row have called him Kyrie <laughs> twice. And I was like, I don't understand this. doesn't matter. They're playing him a lot of that inside the box linebacker. And that's something we talked about particularly early on in the year of like, they're trying to get him to do more of that, but that's not naturally what he was. He was an edge guy at TCU. You yeah. saw him when he had success against Georgia tech and the two cupcakes they played before that, the, the escaping right now, he was kind of around the line of scrimmage shooting up in the backfield, blowing up quick running or running plays and short passing plays. But because of their injury status, he's had to play a lot more in the box. I, I couldn't begin to pretend like I know how he played when those snaps were like when he was in the box and kind of in the three, two, six, but it, whatever it was, it kind of worked. And I thought that was impressive because they don't have a ton of depth at that linebacker position. And after the first quarter, they survived just fine with Troy Brown being pretty gimpy. A lot of Ashanti Sistrunk snaps, I, Austin Keys, I'm assuming, played. I actually, I did see him out there, but I didn't did. see a ton of him. I don't know if, <laughs> if he was banged up too. I haven't heard that mentioned, but he was for a team that's already dealing with the Troy Brown injury. He wasn't on the field a lot. And my point in all of that is, they also deserve credit for making do for what was a really banged up football team, particularly on the defensive side of the football. No, I mean they, they've lacked real depth at linebacker, and I don't know if Keys is healthy or not, but I do feel like they've they've kind of seen what he's been able to give you. And, you know, I don't like to rag on players, but semi-disappointing in his kind of, you know, run fits, his his speed. I, I think having Kari there, the way he's been able to, you know, the run blitzes that he had last night were just really incredible. I mean, he was getting past the guards, tackles. It didn't matter. I mean, he was really, really, really disruptive when they had him kind of walk up in that kind of four-tech, three-tech um, while you had the other three down linemen. And then, I mean, Cedric Johnson, I mean, golly. Like, I mean, he's on a pitch count. He's clearly hurt. But you know, we, made kind of mentioned, we mentioned, like, not having those defensive linemen that you feel like are making a big impact. He, he's just a game changer for this team when he's in there. I mean, his ability to rush the passer, whether it's inside, outside, or whether he's coming on like kind of like a spy, delayed blitz, I mean, he, he beat every single guy last night. He, he was really, really impressive. Two of those sacks, when they had those two in a row, 
were really attributed to him. I mean, he was just all over the place. And they need him, like, as much as anybody on this football team need him to be fully healthy in two weeks when they play Bama because he, he you could just see last night the difference that he makes uh, coming off the edge. I think you're dead on with that, and that was something I wanted to get to next was where he wasn't really healthy at all. He was a shell of himself last week against uh, LSU. Even when he had that sack against LSU in plus territory, he got up and was favoring one of those legs or something. I was like, he doesn't look right. It clearly still wasn't healthy because he wasn't out there for as many snaps as we're accustomed to him uh, to seeing him, at least to the naked eye watching it once and then part of the game again today. He was, I didn't, I thought he was at least on some pitch kind of, I'd be interested to see the snap counts on Monday as we record this on a Sunday night, but even just him 15%, 20% more healthy to your point, he made a huge impact on that game. And I don't think it's a total coincidence that Ole Miss had very little to no success getting home with the pass rush, even when they blitzed last week. And they were a lot better in that regard this week. They weren't perfect. They weren't great, but and dealing with the less mobile quarterback, all of those qualifiers withstanding, they were still a lot better, and that proved to be a huge difference. I, I thought a lot of that was centered around Cedric Johnson because Jared Ivey played better this week than I thought he did last week. But overall, Definitely. he's been pretty good. But it also works to his detriment when there's no one on the other side. I mean, you saw that with Sam Williams last year. It helps to have a really good Robin to your Batman on that other side. And you saw fragments of that last night. I don't think it's a coincidence they had more success getting to the quarterback because of it. Yeah, and they were able to get there uh, with four. Yeah, and you know if you include the linebacker, whereas against LSU, it was kind of like I mean it was probably their defensive game plan was was rush three, and then when you really wanted to blitz, you were sending like six, and they couldn't get home either way. And tonight, being able to kind of disrupt them and rush with four makes you, <clears throat> excuse me, much more multiple in the back. It gives you much more of a blanket. And just kind of the way the AM's offense works, it's just not a lot of quick hitting stuff. It's a lot of timing and, and routes developing and, you know, with quarterback wide receiver stuff. And late, they kind of hit a few over the middle and like kind of their ideal offense. But once Jimbo kind of got away from just handing the ball off to their best player, I mean, that just fit right into what Ole Miss needed was putting the hand, putting the ball in the hands of the freshman quarterback instead of the guy that runs the 10 2. Uh, I mean, you saw, I mean, it changed the entire game. Once they, finally started getting him down and putting a in like second eight, second nine, instead of second and four. I mean, we've seen it all year. This defense when they're second and six to eight is just a completely different team from second and four and three. And that's like a very obvious statement. That's any defense, but especially with this group, just kind of the way they, they scheme up the, the way they scheme their defense. Uh, they, you can do so much more and they're so much more effective in second and long, the second and short. I mean, it's like second and short might as well just be another first down. And those first downs just begin to add up, add up, add up. As you saw against LSU, I mean, they had like freaking 35 of them. Uh, it's just a completely different game. And AM is just, you know, the offense is not as good. They're not as, they're not as explosive. And it, it showed uh, throughout, you know, really from the quarter and a half on. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you there because the the it is as obvious as it sounds. It makes a huge difference because of the way this defense plays. Because of I know they went to a couple more four down fronts last night because of like the three two six action and all of that. When you get to that second and 
three to five range. One, I don't know why any team would ever throw on that distance against this particular Ole Miss team because it doesn't seem like they still have the girth in the middle. Part of it's the way the defense is designed, I guess, but part of it is just not having a ton of impact interior defensive linemen yet. I, with that said, I thought J.J. McKee's played pretty well. We'll get to him in a he minute. Did. He did. He definitely handled their center. I mean, their other, their other center, the five-star um, – Stud, he uh, he he was called like Big Head because he had like the head the size of like three bowling balls. I remember Clinton used to talk about him like a, a freak of a player, and he was out, and it was clear because Pegues kind of handled that backup center the entire night and drew a lot of attention. He was getting held a lot. They they double teamed him a couple of times. Yeah. He was drawing a lot of attention. But like back to what you were talking about regarding that, particularly with this defense, that second and seven, second and eight range is so much more crucial. Because they don't really have the dude on the interior that's going to blow up a running play two yards in the backfield with a ton of consistency to turn a second and four into a third and six. Like a lot of the times when it gets, or more times than not, when it gets in that second and four, second and five range, you're looking at a first down, you're looking at a third and one or two, and then you just kind of repeat the process all over again. So being able to force them into some second and long was huge because then the pass rush got better and it seemed things just came together better for them and I, I thought that was an encouraging sign now again AM had been pretty putrid offensively for a lot of this season so take a, a little bit with the grain of salt but honest to god outside of Kentucky Ole Miss hadn't really seemingly been able to stop any offense you know with a pulse and I'm not necessarily sure you could qualify Kentucky's offense with having a pulse despite as good as Chris Rodriguez is so yeah. that they having some tangible evidence that okay they can slow down the run I, I thought was huge for them in this game. And, you know, back to the linebacker piece of a second, you were talking about the Austin key stuff being a little bit disappointing. We talked about Ashanti Sistrunk, like at least to the naked eye, seemingly there being a drop off there when he has to come in and he had to play a lot of snaps last night because of Brown and a pitch count. I think they tried to supplement that some with Coleman playing as an inside the box linebacker and a more traditional linebacker. You look up at the end of the game and Shistrong led them in tackles, including six solo, solo tackles. Production does not also not always mean you're a good player. You've taught me that through the last year and a half. Very, yeah. But I just wonder if there is that much of a drop off or is it just the fact that those two being keys and Sistrong just aren't as good as what they had last year. And that's actually the problem versus not having Austin Keys is your third guy last year versus a like Sistrunk this year, if that makes any sense at all. Maybe just the drop off is collective, and I was shitting on Sistrunk too much, basically. No, I mean, the drop off, drop off is collective it is just a factual statement. Um, and it's not even really, you know, dogging on the guys that are out there right now because I think they've shown at times they can be really good football players. But the, the two guys are now in the NFL that were playing there um, last year. I mean, that, that's not easy to replace. Um, Sistrunk has phenomenal instincts. He, he, he really does. I mean, if you remember the A&M game last year, he had a great play, then another great interception. Uh, I mean, he's just got great instincts. He just is not a very thick athletic linebacker. So he has real limitations, but at some point it's like, man, this guy knows what he's doing. He knows run fits. He has got great instincts and pass coverage for what he is like that it's helpful it's help, it's a great depth guy to have may not maybe not guy you want to be your starter but he's a smart kid hard worker and really knows ball and keys is probably a little bit more athletic a little bit more of a thumper but probably doesn't have the same instincts that that central Sistrunk has for the position and that's incredibly important at linebacker i mean campbell you know is not the most athletic guy in the world 
he's on an NFL roster right now because the guy is just incredibly instinctive as a linebacker. Uh, I mean, if he had Devin White speed, he would he would have been a like a, a top four round guy, but he just doesn't have it. And that's just life. But yeah. he made a roster by being incredibly smart, incredibly instinctive, and just knowing everything that was going on in the field. And that's not an easy thing to to figure out throughout the development process, recruiting process. That that takes a lot of effort on the player and on the coaches to kind of get them to that level. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a fact. I mean, that these guys aren't last year's guy, but that doesn't mean that they aren't, you know, fully capable. And at times it's really just been the tackling that's been a problem with them, uh, not as much like knowing what they're supposed to be. So I think there is something to take away from this game from that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where Kiffin mentioned after the loss last week that he popped in the Kentucky film to show the defense, hey, you guys have tackled well and you guys have played good football, you know, at times this year. Like, you can do it. And I'm often, like, I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. I thought that was an interesting thing that he did. And I was trying to figure out, like, okay, well, what's actually true here? And I think it probably just goes back to a lot of what we talked about. I think fully healthy and at full strength with no one injured, this defense can get by, right? Troy Brown, Keys, serviceable, fully healthy, said Johnson. Um, Ivy on the other side, and the secondary kind of speaks for itself. But the problem is that's not really what happens in this whole barbaric sport we have called football. And the depth is still an issue. It is. That's something they're going to have to fix beyond this year. It's going to have to come through high school recruiting, which they've already gotten off to a much better start with that than they were at this point last year. But that's probably what this boils down to. Top end, they're probably okay. They're probably not as good as last year, but they're still perfectly serviceable. It's when you start eroding into that depth and start having to play. I thought Jamon Gordon played pretty well last night, but a ton of Jamon Gordon snaps, shuffling around with the linebackers. That's where things get squirrely with this team, and that's just kind of a fact of life and what they are. And so that that's probably where I sit with this defense right now. And – Again, they deserve credit because they come out in the second half. Um, I think Weigman started the second half uh, completing that pass to Muhammad for like 31 yards. You're thinking, man, they yeah. need to stop here. He goes 31 in the Ole Miss territory, and you're like, oh, shit, here they go again. Boom, A-chain lost for run. Uh, they can kind of pin their ears back a little bit. Two quick Weigman incomplete passes, and Ole Miss has the football back. Now they get pinned down on their own six. And the drive that I thought swayed the entire game, the 94-yard drive. The most fraudulent drive. I think it's actually the most fraudulent drive I've ever seen in my life. It's got <laughs> the Casey Kelly touchdown, too, which is almost just too perfect. But I guess to Ole Miss's credit, look, it was aided by three personal fouls. All of which were, were correctly called. Oh, yes. I, but that doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily mean you earned it. But correct. uh, correctly called penalties. <laughs> correct. And it all comes on third down, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe oh, yeah. one of those PS. No, I'm pretty sure all of them were on third down. I'll have to go back yeah. and look at that. But they punch the to their credit, though. They they take advantage of it and they punch that sucker in the end zone. And none of that happens if it doesn't start with Jackson Dart third and eleven on your own five. You're probably thinking the same thing I think at this point. They haven't had a ton of success throwing the football down the field. They're screwed here. And Dart has a pretty ridiculous 12-yard run, puts his head down, gains the first down by yard. One, not only to keep the drive going, but just to get them out of their own territory. Because at that point, you're sitting there thinking still, A&M's had a ton of success running the ball. If you punt it here um, and A&M gets it on the 50 or something like that, 
this is 21-10, and I don't know how you're crawling out of this, or could be 21-10. to That drive was the biggest drive of the game. You can make an argument it's one of the biggest, maybe the biggest of their season, and that really seemed to change things because all of a sudden Ole Miss is up 17-14. to They're having a little bit more success on de- defense, and it felt like, okay, can you go take control of this thing? That was a massive drive in which the yellow flag plus Jackson Dart really, 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 really helped them, and I guess they deserve some credit for finishing it off. Yeah, they absolutely do. I will say, though, they had a drive later in the game. The answer yeah. to, to the, when they cut it back, when they got it back to 10, yes. Yeah, that was definitely important. Um, and to be the slight devil's advocate, they did have another opportunity. I think they were up 24 to 14. Wait, and they had, they had the ball again. And that was the step on their throat in the football game drive. And they, and they, they once again, they kind of couldn't get it done. And that was when I was like, golly, like this is going to be one of those games, like a kind of, uh, you know, white knuckler. Um, but I mean, it's just the defense stepped up and uh, they, they did what they needed to do to, to really, sh- you know, mess with Weidman, mess with a chain. I mean, Evan Stewart is a freak and made two absolutely ridiculous catches, but he didn't kill them. By any means. I mean, I I would say Prince played a pretty damn good football game against a guy that's, you know, going to be an NFL receiver one of these days, probably for Alabama next year. But, you know, he's really good. Um, So, I mean, just like simple moments. It it was a moments game. And Ole Miss really kind of figured out how to manufacture those much better than A&M did. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny. They have a 94-yard drive. And I think I have this correctly. So it's a dart run for 12 and a Mingo 56-yard reception, which was a great play, a great throw, and a huge, huge, huge point in that game. It's first and 10 or Ole Miss is 37. They had just completed a third down via penalty, and boom, they hit him. Great throw, great catch. It was those two plays and penalties, basically, because they get that bogged down by the goal line, and they get they sack dart for what should have been a hold for a field goal attempt, but the guy ripped his face mask almost off of his entire helmet and they get yeah. to do it again. And then he throws a pretty good ball to Casey Kelly. Casey Kelly, vindication, just double birds <laughs> to all the haters out there. My man made a pretty good and a pretty athletic play by Dart. And again, I mean, they, they capitalized on the opportunity. That was penalty-aided. But what they did after that, which is I think kind of what you were alluding to with the answer, I know they were at 24-14 or 31-21 or whatever it was at one point and didn't like capitalize further and kind of issue the kill shot. But what they did after that, I thought, is kind of what made this into a conversation where you're talking about, oh, this was a tough win by a team that was pretty resilient, banged up heading into a bye week after this. What happened after that penalty-aided drive, I thought really kind of showed some of the DNA of this team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also, I mean, we've gone a pretty long time without mentioning Quinchon Judkins. Yes, that's also the very in the lead is what we do here. Yeah, Uh, who goes for 34 carries for 200 yards. He looked like a – like Derrick Henry in 2015 against like Arkansas or something where he just literally just road graded the opposite team. And uh, he had that like, you know, like almost 60 yard run or whatever on that next drive. Uh, I think it was like literally four plays all to Judkins for a touchdown. And that's like, you know, that's what you just dream of is the ability to run the football and kind of just wear down a team and Judkins with some, kind of unhealthy but incredibly productive Evans mixed in uh, was huge for this team. I really do think, looking back against LSU, like not having Evans, it really is a game changer. It really was. And I'm not saying they win that game with him by any means, but 
He's just a completely different back. I mean, I, I love Quinshawn Judkins, and you can call this a hot take, but when Zach Evans is healthy, that, that's just a completely different animal to deal with. I mean, you can just see it. Um, and I'm not taking anything away from Judkins. He's been incredible and is, like, working his way to a freshman All-American and, like, damn near just a regular All-American the way he's played. Uh, but having both those guys together, you know, having Evans on the outside, Judkins on the inside is just so huge. And tonight kind of proved that when those guys are able to play, like this, this team is completely different. I mean, they ranked for 382 yards or something last night and against LSU was to, it was like a hundred and you know, what was it, like 125. Yep. I mean, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's winning and losing a game. I mean, it's completely different. And it's not like LSU's defense is just that much better than A&M's. I, I think it's really just having a guy that you can, you know, get rest, bring in, you know, someone as good as Zach Evans is to kind of carry the load a little bit when you need to. I mean, they were incredible last night. They really were. And to your point about Evans, I think it's spot on because I think that showed itself last night because he didn't play a ton early in the game. They go down and score on the first drive. You see him on the second drive a little bit. It's like, all right, at least he's out there. At least he's giving it a go. But is this going to be one of those games where they have to hand the football to um, to Judkins 30-something times in order to win the game? The answer ended up being yes. And my next question after that is I'm thinking through it in real time. Is that enough? Can they win the game doing that? And I don't know if that question got answered because Evans played enough. He had – I don't know how many snaps he played, but he gets the ball eight times. He had 75 yards on his eight carries at nine and a half yards a carry, plus the pass that I don't know if that counted as a pass or a run. I, I have to go back and look on that big third down conversion late in the game. But point being, they are a totally different football team with both of them out there because they do run differently. They are different types of backs. And even having Evans on a pitch count was kind of the difference for this team offensively. Do you think they win this game as great as Judkins was if, if, if Evans is a complete no-go? Because I think my answer is probably no, even though we don't know that for sure. His eight touches were incredibly impactful ones. I say no. In my opinion, I say no, because you. I just don't think it would have been enough. Um, you know, they, they've kind of gotten away from running dart. So really, it's been all Judkins, and he has been incredible. But two games on the road, I mean, that means you probably are getting – he probably would have gotten 40-plus carries. And I, that, that's just too much for a kid like him. It's just way, way, way too much. I think if Kiffin's honest, he'd say 34 is too much. But he's probably, you know, in like Derrick Henry mode with this kid at this point. It's like we're just going to hand him the ball. Like we're not even going to think about it, you know, Weiss. We're, we're, we're just going to hand this kid the ball and let it happen. Um, it's hard to definitively say they lose the game, but I, I think what Evans provided was something they've absolutely needed. It felt Tennessee-esque that entire game. I made the comparison to it as it pertained to Dart um, on the postgame show last night. Not necessarily the same thing where you run Matt Crowd 27 times, but when nothing else was working, Dart made a couple of really nice scrambles that kept drives alive that were crucial moments in that game. But the other piece of that too was kind of centered toward Judkins, where it was like, all right, this probably isn't the best thing, but this is what we have to do. He has to be our Derrick Henry. He has to be our bell cow tonight. And boy, was that kid up to the call. You're right. We buried the lead. I guess we'll have our, you know, Judkins, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, bonanza here. The kid is unbelievable. Um, the, you know, the storyline regarding the, Kiffin sitting in the rain or whatever for the high school game came up again. 
an incredible it father. Was his birthday. Yeah, <laughs> his birthday that got mentioned a couple of times. Just an incredible difference maker on this team. And I don't know where they would be without him. I, look, running back is a position where if you're kind of physically ready, you can plug and play as a freshman. But for someone that's worked in player development and has seen a lot of this, like what do you have to have and just how hard is it to be this impactful as an 18-year-old, now 19-year-old as the clock struck midnight or whatever, a true freshman in the SEC? Because what this kid is doing is really remarkable. I mean, I, look, you even had hot take guys on SEC Network. I think Jordan Rogers and one over is like, why didn't he in the Heisman conversation? It's like, well, that's not how the award works really these days, but your point's still well stated. Like, what do you have to have to make that impact as a freshman that he has? I mean, the first thing is, is mindset. Uh, this kid clearly has just a ridiculous head on his shoulders, like just completely a professional and in every aspect. And that is incredibly difficult as a freshman coming to play SEC ball. Um, so if you don't have that, you have no chance, especially to contribute this early. Uh, but then we kind of talked about it a few times. I mean, the best running backs you can have are guys that have incredible vision, have incredible balance and have enough speed to make you like pay if you can't get them to the ground. And this kid has all of that. Uh, he, he is a one-on-one -on -one nightmare. You know, it's not like freaking Barry Sanders or anything, but he's got enough change of direction and enough balance and power to completely run straight through you. I mean, on that 60-yard run, uh, he completely makes the safety with The other linebacker comes and tries to grab him. He just stiffs arm him out of the way. And then he's got enough speed to really break off a run like that. And, you know, he didn't take it the distance, but he did his, you know, he did what he needed to do there. Because, um, I mean, there's only so many guys that can just, you know, take that to the house. Uh, he, he's just been really, really, really impressive. I mean, I loved him as a prospect. We were on him in the COVID year really early. Um, he, he seems to be an incredible kid. And, and more importantly, he's an incredible player. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see because, I mean, if he keeps playing like this, I mean, he's going to have Derrick Henry snaps. And I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, he's not 6'5", 220. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how they manage him. Um, but he's going to be great. He, he's going to be here for three years. And, you know, the, the NFL, like, no one – who gives a shit where he's drafted? You know, that that position is so screwed up in the NFL these days. And it's not he, – he's not going to be Leonard Fournette where he's taking top five. Like, that will not happen. But he's going to play in that league. Uh, here in a few years and I mean just enjoy it while you can I mean he went over a thousand with three games left then that's outrageous in itself I mean truly wow. is uh, he, he's awesome it's hard to complain about literally any part of him he's been incredible and talk about the I mean you mentioned the 60 yard run it's not only that run and having the breakaway speed it's the time in the football game in which that game came A&M had just scored to make it 24 to 21 I believe Ole Miss had had a um, Ole Miss had had a chance at 24-14 to um, go up 31-14 issue the kill shot. They didn't do it. They turned it over on downs. A&M scores. There's still like, what, seven, eight minutes to go in that game. And you're thinking, oh, man, like, do they have enough to sustain a drive here? Well, you don't really have to sustain a drive on the first play from scrimmage when they got bust one uh, for 61 yards. I mean, it's, it, it's not only the what he's doing, it's when he's doing it. I mean, how many times – when it felt like they're struggling offensively this season as he popped one for 15 or 18 or 20 just to get them going and get them back going again. That stadium was getting a little bit loud, and he really took the air out of it immediately. That 61-yard run came at probably one of the most crucial points, if not the most crucial inflection point in that game. 24-21, like can A&M get a quick stop and kind of get one more touchdown 
from this kind of weird hodgepodge offense. And he was like, actually, we're going to get some points here. Like this, you're going to have to score a touchdown to beat us. And uh, that ended up kind of setting up for an easy finish to the drive. And at 31, 21, I thought Ole Miss had the football game in hand. They made it more, you know, complicated than maybe it had to be. But I mean, that was an absolutely massive run to cap off an incredible night. Yeah. He, um, he reminds me so much of Darius guys for LSU. And obviously Darius guys is a huge piece of shit, but take that away. Uh, you get a guy like that with a a head on his shoulders, like Judkins. I mean, just he's, he's got an incredibly thick lower body, but is just deceptively shifty and just really difficult to bring down and has enough speed to make you pay for it. Uh, they like literally that, that is my comp for this guy. I mean, they're so, so similar um, from literally every single aspect, stature, speed, the way they run. So like it's incredibly violent. And I mean, he just wears teams down and for a true freshman to be able to do that to like Kevin said, a bunch of five stars is, I mean, there's no words to really put it, you know, say anything else about it. It's been incredible to watch. It has. And so they got to that point in the game. There was a huge third down. I think it was to start the fourth quarter. And I'm thinking, what are they going to run here? It's a third and seven. They really need the conversion. And they run a a play in the flats where, like, it looked like most of the action was going the other way. They swing Evans out in the flats to the wide side of the field. And we talk about them not necessarily getting their running backs involved in the passing game. That was a massive, massive third down conversion at that point point in the football game you finally saw that this offense clearly doesn't really run any screens designed for their running backs you kind of question with an unhealthy Bentley who's getting healthy but like he's kind of the most proven pass catcher at least on paper what he did at SMU versus the sample size with Judkins that we had which is none and Evans which is limited but doesn't seem like he does a lot of pass catching that was a huge play in that game. It clearly worked, and I just wonder if they might do a little bit more of that because, man, he got in space, and it was like, how far is he going to take this thing beyond the first down line? Oh, they were lucky to get him down. Yep. I mean, he, you know, if he's healthy, he runs through that arm tackle, and he's probably gone. Um, it's also a credit – I mean, the receivers, golly, they, they've been they so, so, well. so, so good at blocking on the edge. And they've, they've been called for some shit holding calls uh, in the past few games, but they, they've been so good on the edge. That play doesn't work if Mingo doesn't completely block up the safety. And I think it was either Watkins or Heath on that side. I mean, the, the hole was, I mean, it was a, a first down from the second he caught the ball, uh, the way they schemed it up and the way they blocked for it. So I don't think you're going to see any kind of like, you know, Jerry and Ely seam routes with these guys. I don't think they're those kind of pass catchers. But they're fully capable of catching these swing passes uh, and taking them, you know, stand near to the distance if they need to. That They've been really good about that. Um, so, yeah, you might see a little bit more of that, kind of like a, a change up uh, to some of the short passing because, to be honest, not to be negative, but the non-play uh, action, you know, straight-up drop-back passes have not been great for this team. So, getting the ball out quick from, from dart uh, to the running backs might be something to kind of counteract that issue. Yeah. What, uh, what, where did that come in the game? I thought that that was at the end to start the third quarter. What this pass play I'm talking about, do you remember at what point in that game that came in? I may have had this completely. Uh, it was like third and 11. I think it was, uh, I can't remember what part of the game it was. I think it was to go uh, to make it 24. 24- Four to four. Yeah, that's exactly where it was. Too. Yeah, I think it was seventeen to fourteen. They had the balls like third and eleven on the A and M side of the field. Um, I think they got like a pass interference or something, and then they they just flipped it out to Evans. I think after like a timeout, maybe 
uh, either by AM or Ole Miss. So I can't, I don't, I'm not bad about like exact game flows because I don't, you know, obviously I don't have it sitting here in front of me, but it was incredibly important and surprisingly easy conversion there. Yeah, it really was. That was a surprisingly easy. I was wondering where the hell they were going to go on this play. And the receiver blocking is a huge piece of it. That what allows a lot of the stuff that they do in space, where did some of those short screens that they run. Um, and Casey Kelly deserves some credit for that. For the enough st- uh, kind of crap that he takes, he has had some good blocking moments this year. And Mingo, that kind of speaks to the unselfishness part of him. He's a really, really good blocking receiver, and that adds a lot of value to your offense, particularly when you have playmakers at running back, where it's kind of one of those things, get the football in space and get guys – that can kind of make people miss. Well, if no one's blocking for them, particularly when they get it out on the edge, uh, that the calculus changes on that a bit. And so the fact that they do have a, a good, a decent blocking tight end and at least one, sometimes two, he's been okay at times this year. But really, yeah. Mingo, like that blocking on the edges proves huge for this team time and time again. No, I mean, all three of them, Watkins, Heath, and uh, and Mingo have, have been great on the edges blocking. And that's, you know, for what they run, the way this scheme is working, it's, it's just – it, it cannot be said how important it is. We'll get back to Walden Rodenberg in just a second. Before we do, I want to remind you the podcast is brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. Get a free newsletter from me a couple times a week, plus discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just walk into LB's, show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you the Rippy Wright special there. And boom, your uh, grilling weekend is off to an incredible start. Then go find your own favorites. Oxford's so lucky to have a place like LB's. It is the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious sausages, seafood. I like the filet burger. Get some tri-tip there in the mix. It's got seafood, all kinds of different options, different cuts. Lane Train Special, six-ounce bacon wrap filet. Just awesome, awesome stuff. It's the best butcher shop in the world. Check them out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. Yes, and that was the, uh, by the way, third and 11 toward the end of the third quarter. So I only had it off by three minutes. It was the same drive. I got sure <laughs> in my own head there trying to look at the stat broadcast. So like big picture wise from this game, I, I don't necessarily know if it changes everything uh, or anything I think about what this team like is and isn't. But the fact that like, I guess 10 and two in one of those things is still realistically on the table for them. If they were able to go into this type of environment and win a game like that, I don't know if they'll necessarily go over there and beat Arkansas, but like tonight showed me they can, and they won't fold and that game won't turn into 28, 10. Like they at least have the ability to kind of withstand a storm from an opposing offense or opposing team and stay in the game. Like they did. That's what last night told you. Is there anything that told you anything like kind of earth shattering big picture as it pertains to this team? I mean, not necessarily. I mean, it's crazy to think that you a game like this, I don't know if, like, anything has necessarily changed in my mind, big picture. I wrote that for the game, too. I didn't think that would be the case, and it proved to be true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what it did tell me was, you know, they finally got that big road win. I think that was the most important thing for me was just seeing this team win a game in a really tough environment on the road. Because if they came out and laid an egg, like, it kind of – looked like it was going to. I mean, there was no way they were going to Fayetteville and beating that team on the road again. Because this Arkansas, despite losing to AM in that weird game, that's a better coach football team. That's a more effective football team, especially offensively, uh, than AM. So that's going to be a, a kind of a weird matchup, kind of a shootout because that defense for Arkansas is garbage. Um, but no, I mean it was huge. I mean it sets up a game in two weeks that if Alabama goes on the road and and, you know, beats LSU that, you know, you're playing for the opportunity to control your destiny in the West, which is 
will be the biggest game Ole Miss has played since 2014 Auburn, 2015 Arkansas. Yeah, I mean, LSU debate. is the only one I could throw it. Like, yeah, you can make the debate for 03 LSU, I guess. Because they um, do win the West if they beat LSU in 03, long time ago. But if they win that game, they win the SEC West. Okay, I didn't realize that was like – It was back when they played it. LSU penultimate weekend. LSU had one loss. Ole Miss had no losses is what it was. Yeah, because they, they had lost like Memphis that year, the most fucking Ole Miss shit I remember. Yeah, beat Florida um, in the swamp and then go undefeated and run the table. So, point being, biggest game since what everyone throwed. I mean, I'd argue maybe it's bigger than Arkansas in 15 and Auburn in 14 because of what's not left behind you. Like the Arkansas game in 15, they still had – at LSU and state or whatever. And I know they have Arkansas and state, but I, it just feels like with the West this year, this feels bigger in two weeks because they only have two games after that. And it's kind of right. like, if you win, here's what you got to do. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. I think that makes a ton of sense. And just one more note on the Evans thing. I, I got lost in my own head on that conversion, but it's also worth mentioning. You have a dart scramble after that. And then Evans scores the touchdown, I believe. Um, to cap that off. No, sorry, sorry. It was Evans gets down to the two, then Dart. He like he like tripped on himself. But he has another huge run. I mean, he catalyzed that entire drive. I mean, what you're talking about a 60-something yard drive, and he's got 40-something of those yards, and the guy only had eight, nine touches the entire night. Like, you, know, you get him back fully healthy, this is a different offense, and I think that speaks to it. Can we uh, – can I pour a cold towel on this game yes, real quick? Because A&M – go ahead, because there is another piece that I wanted to get to. What was Kiffin's deal this game? Oh, you want to do the Jimbo thing? What, does Kiffin not realize that we had players faking injury like all last year? Like, what was going What was going on? I, I just don't get it. I mean, I, everything about this game was awesome. It was a huge, huge, huge win. I completely understand why he was taking this personal for Jimbo. I thought Jimbo's comments this summer were some of the most – ignorant, selfish, ridiculous things I've ever heard. Like, the, some people were saying he, like, won the battle against Saban. No, he sounded like a complete jackass. But Kiffin, like, I mean, you're, like, visibly talking shit to a freshman on their team, like, on the 20-yard line, by the way. And then post-game, he's, like, talking about, like, the analytics of these guys, like, actually being injured, like, Where's the self-awareness? I mean, I, I, I love playing it. It's funny, like, in the moment when you see it happening, you're like, yeah, like, this, you know, this guy's got this team's back. Like, he's going to battle for him. And all of that is awesome. But it, it just it just lacks a, a quite a bit of self-awareness if you watched a lot of Ole Miss last year. And honestly, in the game, we faked an injury late in that game when a was driving to bring it in within one score. It's like what – it didn't make any sense to me. That, that's my one cold towel comment about this was just his mentality like pregame during the game and postgame was, was a lot, like, <laughs> like over the top a lot. And I understand why. I mean, he said it, credit to him for saying why he was so frustrated. But the, the complaining about the injuries and then like literally like cussing out – I mean, literally, if you read his lips, cussing out uh, an AM player was was – not the most professional thing I've ever seen uh, from Lane. No, no, it was not. And so, but I'm glad, because that was really after we kind of got through the game piece of it, what I wanted to get to next. It ties into the whole Jimbo conversation. It kind of ties into the entire conversation of it. Is the first thing I was going to ask you, which is mostly tongue in cheek, 
Was it just all Durkin? Was it Durkin, the evil genius? He faked all injuries on both sides of the football. That was his strategy. Now that he's the other side of the football, he's the only one that fake injuries. How much stock do you put into that theory? I'll but it started, it, it, the whole week started with his comment that was honestly like one of the biggest self-owns was saying like, you know, yeah, we got, got out bid for Durkin. It was like, okay, not only are you admitting that you could not pay the coordinator as much as your SEC West opponent, but then, you know, as good of a relationship I had with Durkin and as much as I like him, uh, Durkin overlooked a program where a young man passed away. And you can blame him for that or not. You know, that that's, you know, depends on what side of the argument you're on. It's like it's like a two for self-own that you were, one, trying to keep this guy who, like I said, was incredible to be around. But that's just the fact from the public guy. And then you sure. said you can't pay him. So it starts off with that. It's just weird. I, I don't. His mindset this week was was different than I've seen literally since he's been here, and I think it's because he wanted to win this one badly, and it took it personal. But I, I don't love the way he approached it. I guess is what I'm trying to say, and I don't think I'm being unfair by saying that. No, would you feel differently if everything proved to be true? Everything played out exactly how it did except talking shit to the a&m kid on the 20 would that change a lot for you in that sense because i kind of have to um, say like the, the, so the jimbo thing i get it's the classic lane joker joke clown mask poking fun at the opponent but when he is jawing with an opponent about faking an injury on the 20 i'm like okay this is going to another level that's what that's what made it different than the normal kiffin stirring things up because that's what he does being the contrarian thing. I thought that's what made it different to me. I thought that's kind of what made my eyebrows raise more. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I guess that would have ch- excuse me, changed things a little bit. Um, but it was, it was just very interesting. It, it feels like there more happened this summer than maybe we even yeah. know um, behind the scenes because he was just a different guy out there last night. And I, I'm saying it's not necessarily a bad thing. But I don't love the, you know, kind of like the public approach he had and at least the public stance he took on a few things about this game. And then, you know, in his post-game presser, someone asked him about him jawing with, I think it was Anderson, the freshman. And he was like, oh, you know, it's just two guys, you know, five-star, you know, kind of like electric attitude. Like, we're going back and forth. It's not what it looks like. It looks like Anderson said something and Kiffin just basically dog-cussed him (laughs) for like literally, I mean, he was – like continuing to talk to him like 20 yards into the field. I think it was funny at first, but then when you take a step back, it's like, it's just a bad look all around. Um, and I don't care. You know, they won the game and, you know, just, just like think about the flip side and it's, it's stupid and what if, but like if they hadn't lost this game, I mean, they hadn't won this game. I mean, it all would have looked really bad, but they didn't. So who cares? But you, you know what I'm saying here? And it, I know it's, you know, it's kind of being a Debbie Downer negative look at it, but it was just something I had not seen from him ever. No, no, no. I'm glad you brought this up because you're not doing the whole classless get off my lawn thing. It's just like, what was up with this guy tonight? Every Everyone watching TV probably had the same reaction when he did. I mean, look, the post game, some of it seemed just like, all right, that's Kiffin being Kiffin. Oh, but yeah. That, no, that the, the, none of like the clown stuff. That, that's that's whatever. But that exchange is kind of what took it to another level. And so I'll add some color to this because I've, I wanted to talk about this for a minute anyway, because I think it's a fascinating dynamic. So before we get to like the big picture part of it, as it pertains to him talking 
talking to the defensive uh, Anderson, who clearly faked an injury. It was so funny on the broadcast. Oh, it was unbelievable. He makes a tackle. He pops back up and then looks at the sideline, pops back to the ground, and starts pointing at his right ankle. And Jordan Rogers, I love Tom Hart. He does a great job. He's good friends with Richard Cross, and he came on our radio show a couple of times. But he also came in person when he had to come in town for a game, and he was just really a nice, normal guy to chop it up with. I He, he wouldn't know me from the next dude down the street. But I, I just very enjoyed talking to him off air and all that. He seems like a normal dude. What was so funny to me about that is Jordan Rogers goes, yeah, I've been there before. You 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 pop back up and think you're all good, and then all of a sudden it hurts down there, and you have to pop back down. And you noticed in the point in the broadcast, Tom Hart doesn't really say anything. Tom Hart's yeah. got a pretty good head on his shoulders. I'm sure he's sitting there going, maybe he's even nudging Jordan Rodgers, but like, really? Like, I think we all know what's going on here. That part made me laugh. Then the the to the actual. I'm not going to be that guy and call it an altercation, but to the actual no. exchange and kind of the crap talking or shit talking, whatever you want to call it. It did come at a moment where Kiffin mentioned this in the post game. So they get down. I don't remember if they scored on this play or got down by the goal line. They almost called an illegal block or an illegal man downfield. And that happened to them last week where Kiffin thought the football was thrown be- behind. It was. it was a terrible call and an incredibly crucial part of that football game. And yes. it almost happened again. And Kiffin said in his post-game press conference, we had a, I had an hour phone conversation with so-and-so from the league office about it. And so they throw that flag that put Ole Miss on the doorstep of scoring. And yeah. so, of course, he's hot. He's pissed, right? It's like, I just talked to you clowns about this for an hour this week, and you're going to call this again. So he's already upset about that. And then Anderson comes and chirps him. And it's like, I don't know, jumping down your – wife, girlfriend, fiance, when you've had a terrible day at work and they tell you to take out the trash or something. That's probably a terrible example. No one deserves that. But just in general in life, when you've had a bad day and someone just says something that's an innocuous comment and you're like, you know what, dude, I'm about to let you have it. It felt like a little bit of that because it came in about that call. This is not like a defense of Kiffin. I was just so shocked to see him get that heated. I think that piece of it played into it. I would love to have – we'll never get this because there's no college version of NFL films. We're all terrible lip readers. I thought the Barstool thing – I know some of it was probably tongue-in-cheek. Did you see the Barstool video where they tried to – it was 100% accurate. I mean, you thought – I I can't tell. I'm bad at this. You thought that's exactly what he said and called him a little bitch and all Yes. Okay, interesting. I don't disagree. I just couldn't tell, and I was like – Damn, like Barstow's really taking some liberty with this. No, no, no. I did That's exactly what he said. You be hurt, and he pointed at him. I couldn't tell with the little bitch comment. I'm not saying it's wrong or right um, in terms of like whether it happened. I just couldn't tell as much. So I, I guess that's a piece of it. Maybe that just kind of the competitor in him. The only other time I could think of something like this was Ole Miss scores a getaway touchdown in the Egg Bowl last year. And yeah. he hated the cowbells and he turns around and does, uh, no one can see me on camera, but does the kind of chop, like the, the incomplete, like it's, like over, it's over the yeah. choke thing. That's the only time I've seen it. This is obviously a whole new level when he goes at another player. I guess that part played into it, but it's also very clear. And to get to an actual point in this rambling monologue, he doesn't like A&M. He doesn't like no. anything the way they've gone about doing things. And it spilled over into him being like, you know what? I'll just put a safe. I'll put this freshman safety into a locker. That's what <laughs> I saw. Yeah. The context of when it happened in the game and like kind of sparking him completely makes sense. Yeah. Completely agree. 
at the end of the day, you are a like what 47 year old coach, like literally dog cussing, you know, which is funny, a, you know, 18 year old. So it's not the best look in the world, you know, especially going back to the fact that Ole Miss fakes injuries like all the time. So, you know, it was just kind of a weird moment that I had never seen before. That's why I kind of brought it up. I was like, I don't know if I love this. I think it's funny personally, but it was just a very interesting moment and why it brings me back to thinking that there was just a lot more between A&M and Kiffin this summer or Jimbo and Saban. Um, Because, I mean, all these guys talk. There must have been more to that because he was heated all week about this game. So to to play this conversation forward past that particular incident, he does the Joker thing with Kublik in the post game. He apparently this wasn't on the filmed part of the post game press conference when it officially started. He apparently said something like, "I can't wait to see Jimbo. I can't wait to see him." Like I, I, I have, I need to pull up the quote. And I saw someone tweet that. I didn't know if that was like a joke added on or if he actually had said that. Right. Exactly. No, I think he, from the sounds of it, because multiple people who were on site that day, including a two four seven guy said like lol kiffin starts his press conference is something to the effect of like i can't wait to see jimbo maybe he has clown like does he still think saban and i are clowns that clearly was before the report the uh here it is i want to i can't wait on i want to wait on jimbo see what he has to say see if he calls me and saving clowns so that's the quote that clearly came i mean i've done enough of these press conferences through the years that's something he says before he actually gets in front of the microphone it's usually a small room he's probably doing it because he wants it to know it's out there but it's not be a part of the press conference that's a strategic thing that guys do through the years my man Hugh Freeze did that a time or two um the Shea Patterson story comes to mind where he beats A&M actually in the same stadium Shea's talking to us on Mondays and Hughes off to the side as Shea's walking to the podium was like hey he's a great kid but he doesn't want to be compared to Johnny Manziel and it's like bro who is writing that column this week they, they beat an average A&M team but <laughs> that type of thing that happens off to the side now, on top of that, he kind of continued on. And, like, I just think he really doesn't like Jimbo Fisher. He's he's harped on the free agency thing a ton. Like, he's harped on – I mean, it, hell, he said, look at what Judkins did against a bunch of five stars. He said that multiple times on purpose. I don't know if it's the fact that he's – jealous is maybe not too strong of a word – but envious of what AM's allowed to do or has the ability to do versus Ole Miss. But, but that added on to the fact that they're terrible. I think he's like, yeah. why did why did these guys get to have all these players? Like, right. it, like it's like what I could do with them, not because he wants to be at Texas AM, but he's like, these guys are terrible. They were able to get the greatest recruiting class ever. They have won literally nothing. He's like, it's like this is bullshit that like this team of all teams gets this. You know, like we would when we're still kicking their ass. I mean, there's two years in a row of yep. a pretty solid victory over all of these guys. So I think it's all of that is boiled up along with kind of the, the comments from the summer. And what it boils down to is, is he clearly just doesn't like Jimbo Fisher um, as yes. a as I mean, look, they're not like not all these guys are personal friends, but you have jawing back and forth between coaches sometimes and they still like respect one another and it's kind of all good fodder. I mean, I mean, people are making WWE references to the stuff in the offseason. It was all incredible content. I'm here for all of it. But last night, what showed me is, is no, this is more personal for Kiffin. He doesn't like Jimbo. Um, you know, he called Saban a <laughs> he called Saban a close personal friend. 
that they were both called clowns. I don't know if Nick Saban reiterate that he and Lane are close personal friends, but that's the point. He used the word personal. He clearly doesn't like Jimbo. Um, Neil apparently knows Jimbo decently well. Neil's a pretty well-sourced guy, well-connected. And like he called Jimbo on the post-game show last night an egomaniac. So clearly Jimbo rubs people the wrong way. And I think it's a combination of all of that, but you haven't seen Kiffin take a lot of stuff publicly, personally. Um, really anything publicly personally. You know, there's a big debate about whether he actually like the love fest for the respect that he has for Saban and there's no animosity there. You know, there's some question about whether that's actually the case or not, whatever. This is clearly he's okay with going public of like, I don't like this guy. And that's what I took away from last night. And I'm going to kick him when he's down because we've beaten them, as you said, two years in a row when they have all these players. It's clearly a personal animosity thing. And to flip it back to you, I'll, I'll bring up one last point. He gets asked about it directly when you have a war of words going into a game like this. Does it add to motivation? And Kiffin said, I'm not going to give you coach speak. Yes, it does. And I was like, whoa, that was actually a pretty honest, like seminal moment um, that I thought when he said that. The second part of it was, I don't know if you caught on this. It was a British reporter that some Brit got some. I'm bad at deciphering accents. It's a British or Australian fellow in there. I was like, does this guy cover a football club across the pond? Like, can we get him on the pod? Where, where's it this? Was, it was a weird accent. I watched it. Yeah. British guys have a great way of getting great answers. British media are better than better than we are. Like, I don't know if that guy covers Tottenham in his spare time. We'll look into that for soccer corner. I just thought that was hilarious. But also back to the point, Lane's honesty of just like, hell yeah, there I get added motivation was telling to me. There's an added part to this that I literally just thought of in my head. Um, Because when I was on staff during the COVID year, as you remember, we did not play Texas A&M that year. Right. Because they had too many guys out with COVID. That was like the third or fourth game that they had that. They were not going to have Kellen Mond for that game, and they ended up canceling it. I don't know. I can't remember our reaction to that. But I do vaguely remember some coaches being pretty frustrated about that. To add that. context to it, you remember they were going to replay it the week after the SEC championship. And Ole Miss had a bunch of opt-outs, and their COVID situation wasn't good. And it just – that at that point in the year – remember, we got to the end of that COVID year, and a lot of those games that were going to get made up at the end of the year just weren't for a variety of reasons. So the Ole Miss canceling wasn't the same, but to your point, you don't remember what the reaction was. It may have gotten muddied by the fact that it did kind of semi-swing back the other direction and Ole Miss didn't have it. But there was no point in playing that game anyway at that point. It was a pointless football game, whereas that muddied the reaction to, oh, A&M kind of backed out of this deal. Yeah, no, that, that makes complete sense. I just remember – I think we had just beaten somebody, like a pretty a pretty solid win for that year. I don't know if you can look at it. I'll look it and up. And we had A&M the next week, and then it was like we played somebody and then LSU. I think it was like the third to last game. We're supposed to go there. And I remember a lot of the coaches being like, yeah, like Mond has COVID. Like there is no way we're playing this game. And then it turned out, guess what? We didn't play that game. It was also the same year, if I remember correctly, that AM canceled their bowl game with Wake Forest, unless that was 21. Was that last year they did that? No, no, it was uh no, it was it was last year because no, they played the Orange Bowl that season. year. They played the Orange Bowl that year. But that adds to what you're talking about. AM ends up being a one-loss team. I don't know if anyone would have predicted Ole Miss to win that game with the defense they had, but the fact that they wouldn't go play it and then end up having a one-loss season probably plays into what you're talking about.
Yeah, I could I could be completely wrong on that. I but I do remember like some odd frustration in some of the meetings I was in about that. Okay. And I, I'm not saying that like started everything, but Lane is friends with a lot of coaches in the SEC. May not be buddy buddy, but I mean that the group text like with him and Kirby and Pruitt, like that was real. Like he wasn't just making that up. Like that, I mean, he's on the phone like in the office like all day. He he talks to a ton of different people. He does not like Jimbo. That is clear. So, you know, full circle. I, I get the heatedness. I don't love how he approached it, but I do get it. The uh, to your point, they had just beaten South Carolina. They had a good second half. They scored fifty nine something points, and then they cancel the game and they don't play another game to the Egg Bowl and then the LSU deal. So that did come off a big win. To your point, that was uh, I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I remember that now. So he clearly like that. I mean, I don't know if there's much more to add to it. It just last night, that was my takeaway. He does not like Jimbo Fisher. And I just wonder, I mean, you would know this better than I do. You just kind of added some color and some very interesting context of like, he does talk to a lot of people. He's friends with other coaches. I wonder if that sentiment is shared league wide because you don't have, like, you don't see Saban publicly going after people very often. And he just teed it up and was like, yeah, you know, when you got them having basically an unlimited and buying players, like Saban kind of started this whole thing while Lane just added like fuel to the fire in February. I just wonder last thing on this is like, is that sentiment shared league wide? Because I don't know. Could you not see Jimbo being that jackass friend in your friend group that never shuts the hell up and is also confident in everything despite never actually being right about a ton of stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's fair. I don't know for a fact how most other people feel about Jimbo. Um, I can imagine that there were a lot of people that saw what happened towards the end of his tenure at Florida State and then saw him get a 10-year, $100 million contract thanks to our old boy Scott um, and we're probably like, you know, this guy gets that contract. I mean, he just, you know, gutted a pro. No, he did win a national championship. Can't forget that. Um, on a one of, in my opinion, like maybe not the all-time team, but it was a, it was an incredible Florida State. Look team. at that roster to come looking back now, and you're like, oh, that guy plays a ton. That guy's a Pro Bowler. That guy's a Pro Bowler. A really, really, really good Florida State team. Um, but towards the end, I mean, he got so fed up with Florida State. I mean, he ran that roster completely into the ground and was rewarded with the biggest contract in the history of college football. Uh, I can imagine there were some people that are like, you know, what the hell is this? Like, I mean, do you see what happened at Florida State after he left? And then, you know, at AM, he has won absolutely nothing uh, of worth and he gets an extension. <laughs> and now people are like, you know, we may like this guy, but, you know, we don't respect, you know, the context of his, you know, development of that program compared to what we're doing here. I mean, there's only so many people making that much money, but the guys are Nick Saban. Uh, he, his resume is, is spoken for. Uh, Kirby, his resume is spoken for. <laughs> By the way, did you see Kirby's buyout if he got fired this year? <laughs> what is it? We'll get that to, you know, expensive fraud coaches. Um, Kirby is not one of those, but it's $102 million. If Kirby, for some stupid reason, was fired, obviously he will not be. They showed a whole list on the broadcast. Did you kind of go into a, a different tangent? But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know on Jimbo. Uh, I, he doesn't feel like he, like, has real relationships with other coaches. You don't really hear about it a whole lot. Um, I know the LSU situation ended in kind of a very bizarre manner with him and and Saban, and once he left, 
uh, LSU to go to Florida State. There, there was a little stuff there. So I, I don't know. It, it's he's an interesting character in college football. That's for sure. And that's that you just brought up to my mind a couple of things I wanted to get to, but didn't write down. I don't want to keep you too late, but I find this stuff fascinating. Is so two things as it pertains to that the Jimbo AM thing. I'll, I'll I'll start it with an old miss facing point of this to get to what I'm talking about. Buchanan mentioned to me a lot of times last week about Ole Miss is much better when they go fast and they play tempo. When they get bogged down and they go slow, they're a lot worse. And when they go tempo, Dart plays better. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's his aggressive nature. Did you think just based off the naked eye watching that game, Ole Miss had a little bit more of a cognizance of going fast? And there were times where they got bogged down. It wasn't 100 miles an hour like Tennessee is for four quarters type of thing. But it did seem they made – an effort to go faster this game. Um, and that was a note I left out when we were talking about the game. Did you notice that as well? Because I thought it did lead to some offensive success. The one thing, the small note on that is I almost does that and the receiver will like catch a pass or the uh, running back will get tackled near out of bounds. And they'll go try to place the football themselves instead of handing it to the umpire who has to spot it himself. I don't understand that piece of it. Why don't they're instructed to hand the ball to the official doesn't really matter. Just something I noticed, but did you notice them going faster in this game? Because I thought there was a little bit more of a conscious effort to do that than there was against LSU. I think when you're playing against a team like A&M where the talent discrepancy is, is where it was when going faster can kind of negate that a little bit. You can kind of, they can't call, you know, special defenses. They're going to have to play same coverage or maybe a slightly different coverage in the last play. Um, And then especially in this game, one of the reasons they were able to go so fast is because of the explosive runs they had. So once you get those explosive runs and you're able to kind of then back that up with snapping the ball quickly and getting more and kind of compounding that against this team, and that that's huge. So LSU, they really didn't have a lot of explosive first down plays. But you notice in the first two drives against LSU, scripted up, they were going as fast as they went the entire game. But kind of when you're in the second eight, second at nine, it's like there's – at that point, it's like why why are we still going, you know, super, super fast here? We're kind of just giving them plays. Um, and that kind of began to happen once they adjusted the four down in the middle of the game. But then once they, you know, Ole Miss counter-adjusted, kind of doing some more outside runs, uh, some more play action, I think that you were able to see them speed it back up again. I just think that's something they're definitely going to have to do against Alabama – with yes. all talent discrepancies, as you it's going to have to be 2020 and that game i don't see the game playing out the same way but that was as fast as you'll see old miss ever play and like that was again don't you think oh it'll be something similar to that absolutely uh you have no choice i mean you you can't bog down that game you can't play control you know control the clock against a team like bam as explosive they are so yeah they're going to be going at warp speed for that game i would imagine the other side of that, and I wanted to get to the Jimbo and what you do with A&M piece of this. What what do you do? Tom Hart had an incredible line, or I think, I don't remember if it was both teams or just one, but he was like, you know, right now it would be cheaper to buy out Oklahoma and Texas, or it may have been Oklahoma or Texas than it would Other be. Other contracts, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, wow, that's a great line. That's why Tom Hart's pretty good at his job. I was like, that's pretty good stuff that he's like out there. And I was like, damn, like, what do you do? Because the whole narrative of, well, they're just going to, you know, he's going to have to have massive staff turnover. He's going to have to have massive staff changes. Well, Jimbo Fisher, as Neil put, it's kind of an egomaniac, has a huge ego. If they owe him that amount of money, what incentive does he have to say, you know what, I'll change my offensive defensive coordinator. I'll give up play calling. Well, why wouldn't you just say to hell with you, pay me. If you want to fire me, fire me, or I'm going to do this my way. Give me my $86 million. I'm not changing this. I agree with that. 
my flip argument for the sake of it is, I mean, he does have to have some sort of competitive character, right? Like no, he, no, he does want, want to keep that. losing. You know, I, I don't believe that he enjoys being three and five currently or eight and four or whatever they've been in the past. Um, so my, I would assume that maybe if push comes to shove, he will eventually attempt to adjust. There has been no, you know, past, you know, history, history of him doing that. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be shocked if he says, screw it, I'll figure it out my way. Cause yeah, he does have that kind of ego. Um, but I don't think he likes losing either. And I, I feel like this might be, you know, Brian Kelly went four and eight at, at Notre Dame that one year. And he kind of like really took a complete step back and completely changed damn near everything about that program, the way he ran it. And they won like 10 games every single year until, you know, he left for LSU. Could this be that year for Jimbo where he like, it really hits the fan and he's like, okay, I get it now. Like I have to change. Maybe, maybe not. Um, You can't fire him. I think just as a statement for college football, you know, we've seen crazy shit happen. There's absolutely nothing about this sport where you can say, oh, no, that definitely won't happen. If you fire that him, be, you enter the point and overturn of buyouts. They mean nothing. They mean, they, they mean nothing. I think it's, it's a really, really bad look on the sport if you can provide contracts like that and then, you know, on a whim, pay up the $86, 87000000 million to get out of it. It's just a terrible – I can't even think of the word off the top of the tip of my tongue to, to, to understand what I'm trying to say. It, it's not good for the sport if that happens. It it completely changes the way we look at contracts. It completely negates leverage on both sides. It, it just makes no sense. You can't do it. Now, I don't know if you follow the market like I do, but uh, if you saw Exxon, Chevron, and Shell's earnings over the past week and their revenue, pretty good. they fucking had the money to do it. <laughs> they do. Uh, I mean, it, it, they absolutely could do it if they wanted to. The statement it would send to college football is that nothing fucking matters. And I don't you know, even as crazy as those people are, if that's the way they want to go about this. So I, I don't think you can fire them, beg them to change, figure it out. There's, they're going to have talent there. You know, that, that's a fact. So I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I can see it being both ways, but I would imagine this marriage is, is going to continue. He got asked a question in the post game about if they considered going faster and playing more tempo. And he goes, Oh, yeah, we did that. We went fast. That's what you know. they did go fast. I'll give him credit for that. Faster they did go fast. fast. They went fast. Okay. They, for their standard, they went fast. I mean, the first two drives, they were running legitimate tempo. Absolutely. Now, did it continue like necessarily you would see a tempo team do? Uh, no. But when they got first downs, they went fast. Uh, he was telling the truth there. Uh, he was. Now, I had never really listened to a Jimbo press conference, you know, intently. He just completely cuts off like every single reporter, which yes. I think is hilarious. Um, but no, he he's like, it seems like he's not uh, transparent or truthful or, you know, he real. Is in a weird way in the post game, in a strange way. In, in a strange way. He, he was honest. I mean, he, he never, ever blames the players which I, I take credit, I give him some credit for that. I mean, he really does in very like thinly veiled, sarcastic ways, kind of blames the, the coaches and, you know, need to get better. But 
Um, his attitude was very odd after in the press conference. It was, it was not in a very down state of mind, probably because he has a contract worth $86 million to look back on. But um, I do give him a little bit of credit on the way that he acted after the game. Yeah, I, I think there probably is some contentment with the fact, like, I'm rich. I got a nice ranch out here. This will be fine. Last sure. thing on this, do you think this negates the whole – we talked about the Mel Tucker deal. We talked about the Jimbo Fisher deal. My brother texted me last night was like, I don't understand. They said his buyout is X, but why is it more expensive? And I had to remind him that Ross gave um, Jimbo an extension bidding against actually no one in August, and that's what re-upped and changed the math. Like, do you think to some degree this changes the calculus? I, I totally agree with your sentiment about like, hey, if they do buy him out, this is just not a good – it's not good for the market. It's hard to explain what I'm trying to say, but it, it, it would be really, really, really bad. It would just be like, what are we doing here? What is this exercise? These guys just get paid till they're fired. I don't understand it. It's not fully professional sports yet, even though it's damn close. But like, do you think this makes people more guarded, even if they hire a good coach? It's like, no, we're not giving you nine years. Like, what, what's the point of that? We fire guys after three. Do you think that changes at all? No, <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, if we want to start my favorite small segment now, it, when they pulled up that photo, kind of that little image graphic on the screen of the largest buyouts in college football, Mel Tucker and James Franklin were on there in the top five. Yeah. And they have earned none of that. I mean, Frank, I mean, Tucker had an incredibly impressive year one. It has cratered in year two. And it, it's, it not only is it cratered, it is cratered and has looked bad. And then who knows what crystal balls is because they're a private school, so they don't have to disclose it. Word around town is that it is astronomical. It, it is as sad and pathetic as you can imagine it would be. Um, oh, and by the way, all those three, three of those teams were garbage. Miami scored 14 points on zero touchdowns against Virginia. Uh, Franklin did it again, and Tucker got his ass kicked by Michigan and then proceeded to start a brawl in the tunnel. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, not a good look for my three favorite coaches, um, Jimbo included in that one, I guess you could say, being another guy making more money than he should be. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, no, it won't stop. If people are going to pay him, they're going to pay him. Let's talk big picture and look around the SEC before we get to soccer corner. Ole Miss is 8-1. I, I don't know if I think this is a particularly really good team. I think this is a good football team. But they are 8-1, and, and if – if Alabama handles business against LSU, which I think they will, even though I think that game will be competitive. It definitely will be competitive. Ole Miss in the second week of November will have a game to control their own destiny in the SEC West. And for not even just a program like Ole Miss, any program that's taken the field each year in college football, and particularly in this division, the toughest in the sport, that's all you can ask for, to be in that position with three games remaining. And this team, for whatever its flaws and its – its inconsistencies are, is now in that position. They will now have two weeks to get healthy and prepare for Alabama. I don't think Ole Miss was in, kind of in the same league in Alabama. I just haven't seen enough from them defensively and consistently on offense to say, yeah, here's the case. Here's how they'll beat them. I think they're kind of good. I think they're kind of better than Alabama. Of course, that's not the case. Like last year, I kind of talked myself into that. It was the third game of the year, right? That was a weird line. A lot of It was a fraud. It was a weird game. I'll weird, give them that. Weird, weird game. game. I'm not at that point this year, really not even close to it. I, I Again, but if if the con, like whatever conditions you needed to get prepared for a mismatch like this, it is the fact that they're going to have two weeks to get healthy. It is the fact that they're going to have two weeks to prepare. Alabama is going to come off a pretty physical contest against LSU. I'll start with this. 
How much is the bye week huge? I know you're not a medical doctor. We don't know what the injuries are, but just that extra seven days of being off your feet in terms of overselling, underselling the renewed health of a football team, just in a general high level sense, how big is the bye week before going and playing an opponent like that in terms of just actually getting healthy? I mean, it's, it's massive. I mean, you think of it from just a straight situational spot for Ole Miss. Nine You're going to be off a bye week and Bama will be on back-to-back road games. You can't ask for a better schedule setup uh, for a game of that magnitude. Will it matter? I don't know. Uh, personally, I don't think so. But, you know, situationally, I, like, I would bet you, I, I promise you right now, that line is going to stink. My guess is it's like four. If Bama wins against LSU, I bet it's like 14 and a half. We're the same boat. It's going to be stinky, stinky, stinky line because of just the straight situational spot with Vegas. Um, It'll be a weird line, I would imagine. Um, But it's huge. I mean, like Kiffin said, they're banged up. They'll be able to get guys to at least a better percentage. Uh, If they were 50, maybe they'll be 80. You know, if they're 80, maybe they'll be 100. You know, and if they haven't been playing, you know, the, the Trig ghost or the Jalen Robinson ghost, it's like maybe they're healthy enough for this game. Uh, so from that standpoint, you're going to be a much fresher team against a team who's playing, you know, their most important game of the year on the road and then going on the road again uh, to face you. So you're going to have as good of a situational advantage as you could possibly have against this team. Um, and that's really at that point of the season with the stakes that are potentially, you know, up in the air, uh, it's really all you can ask for. Can they beat Alabama? And the reason I ask you this is I remember in 18, I did a rare seven, 18 when they back played Knoxford, the DK Metcalf touchdown then 63 unanswered points, whatever the hell it was. I went on a radio show and someone was like, well, give me the case for Miss beating Alabama. I was like, I don't have one. Like, I'm not trying to like ruin your content segment, but like, the, like you guys don't understand what this is. Like that they, they aren't winning this game. This is a complete mismatch. This will be a blowout. And I remember like the host, not like hostile, but it was like, Oh, well, he's not giving them much of a chance. I was like, yeah, man, like they don't have a defense. They don't really, they're kind of a fraudulent long go offense. Are you to the point though, with this team that all conditions, right. Can do it. Cause I'll give them a shot. Um, you know, that 14, 15 point line teams overcome that all the time. I'm not necessarily telling you to make the case, but it's not one of those things where they have no chance. I'm not there. I just think it's a slim one. They absolutely have a chance. It's going to have to be a perfect storm. Um, You're going to have to cause a few turnovers. You're going to have to win the turnover battle by two or three, at least. Uh, You're going to have to tackle Jameer Gibbs. If you can't do that in the slightest bit, you have absolutely no chance. I'm fascinated what their game plan is going to be for this team because it's they're like a offensively they're like the reverse but better version of LSU if that makes any sense. Yeah. LSU can't really run the ball um, but they have absolutely dynamic receivers. Uh, Alabama can absolutely run the ball but their receivers are not LSU. The difference they have is Bryce Young, who is like a evolved version of Jaden Daniels. You're not going to be able, in my opinion, to do a three down Ben don't break against this team because Bryce is so he's so poised and so good at his this point in his career. And will that be- it doesn't matter who the receivers are, he will just cut you up. And if you can't tackle Jameer Gibbs with three down linemen, then it won't even matter because he won't have to. 
Will they go to the kind of the mindset they had against AM? Will they kind of bring up a linebacker to run blitz more? Um, or will they kind of go with what they did last year and just, you know, bend, don't break, try what you can? Uh, and then offensively, it, it, are they going to press like they did last year? Is this going to be a fourth down game? And I, in my opinion, I do not blame him for what he did last year. I think he knew that he was going to have to win the percentage battles and go for it on fourth down and continue drives to win that football game. Does he take that same mindset at home against this team? Because I don't think this Alabama team is as good as the one last year, uh, even though we thought it might have been. But I don't know if that kind of game plan mindset is going to work because you don't have Matt Corral this year. Right. right. So it, the chess match of how they prepare for this game and the good thing is they have a whole week to figure it out. And I'm pretty confident in both sides of the coaching, you know, of this team to, to have the correct idea of what to do. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how they implement it. Are they going to install some Tennessee in this offense? They're absolutely fully capable of, of going full Baylor if they need to. And to be honest, I would be surprised if that's not how they start this game. They keep your base offense. You've got it in your back pocket. I wouldn't be surprised if they went full Baylor uh, to begin this game, to see how it works, see the matchup, see, you know, what they can do or what they can't do. Um, so I, I don't know. Is there a shot? Yeah, there's a shot. I mean, I, I absolutely give them a shot at home. Bama has been, you know, pretty susceptible to losing on the road. They haven't done it. I mean, first of all, there is no guarantee they beat LSU on the road at night. So this could all be semi-moot, but a slim shot. Yeah, and that's the – you talk about the tackling element. I think you outlined it well where it's like they're the inverse of LSU. Um, Like they don't have dynamic receivers, but they have a great running back and an infinitely better quarterback. And that's going to put an emphasis on the tackling and stopping the run and forcing them to beat you through the air. And Ole Miss getting fully healthy and getting that top end talent back healthy and not having to erode into that depth a bit is going to be a massive part. We got two weeks to discuss that thing. I'm looking forward to kind of every, the storylines to go into it. It's kind of ironic Ole Miss actually needs Alabama to go win that game in order for uh, LSU in order to this game to be, you know, exactly what it is in terms of cut and dry, control your own destiny. Let's take a look around the SEC real quickly before we get to soccer corner. Kentucky, I I guess they are who we thought they were. I I thought this, you know, everyone loved to do. It got to the point where they had five or six years where they were kind of the new Tennessee. It's like, oh, are they the second best team in the East? And everyone kind of finally zagged on that. It was like, I don't believe in them. And I was like, actually, this roster is pretty good. Uh, that's that balloon popped for me the other night to not be competitive. Look, it speaks to how good Tennessee is, but to not be competitive in that game, Kentucky's just a good eight win program in the East. Like shut and dry. That's about it. Like I don't get the Levis number one overall pick. I know Scangarello floated that out early in the year and people just ran with it. I don't understand that aspect of it. I was very disappointed in Kentucky, despite how good Tennessee is. Yeah. I mean, Kentucky just seems they seem lost. Uh, Levis, we thought that this team with a quarterback was going to be the difference maker. Uh, and he just, he's been good in parts, but I mean, he had three bad interceptions in that game. I mean, it was non-competitive. Um, Tennessee at home has been the most electric atmosphere in college football this year. Not even close. I mean, I don't know if you saw some of the videos, but that place that has overtaken everywhere this year. I mean, it, it has been the hardest place, the craziest place to play football games uh, this year. And 
I mean, Tennessee's defense, man. I mean, it, it's beginning to become like our version of like the, oh, Ole Miss actually runs the ball. Tennessee actually has a good defense. Yeah, they do. Their defensive line is actually really, really good. I mean, I remember some of those guys. Believe me, Armari Thomas was from Briarcrest in Memphis. I remember him. I mean, he's a hell of a player for them. Byron Young, not to be confused with the Alabama Byron Young, yeah. off the edge, is a really, really good football player. Uh, linebacker-wise, they've got good players. Defensive back-wise, it's like – I don't give me stats. The guys are pretty good players in the back end. I mean, they really do have talent. They are a complete football team. I think they beat Georgia. That game, I, I think they beat Georgia. Did you see that line? What is it? 11 and a half. Georgia minus Georgia is favored by 11 and a half points. That's what I was going to get to next. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> God damn it. Dude, I, I talked to uh, what MC sister's uh, boyfriend there. I was just like, hey, what do you think of Tennessee? I was like, I think they're the second best team in the uh, SEC. I think they might be the second best team in the country, and they'll have a chance to prove they're the first in two weeks. That line opens up at 11 and a half. Look, Vegas knows all. I'm not doubting them in a lot of senses, but that feels like a ton of Georgia respect and like talent and contrasting or like overall talent and contrasting styles. That makes no sense to me. Maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe Vegas knows all, but does that not mean you just had your reaction live on here? Uh, shocking to me. That I is going to be five or six. I thought it'd be like seven. I thought it would be seven. Uh, that is a disgusting line. I mean, that is so bad. And like we have, so the the more that sports betting has become public, the, the worse the coverage of it has been. Um, you know, I, I've done it for a long time, which is not a good thing. Uh, nobody knows why Vegas does anything. Nobody knows. Why do lines move? There, You could have your thoughts and your reasons, but at the end of the day, unless you're working for the book, you have no idea. I have absolutely no idea why that line is 11 and a half. To, the, to, to add to it, immediately after it went to 11, some sites are even reporting it opened at 9. I know for a fact because I had a notification to get notified. It opened at 11 on Action Network at 11 and a half and is now down to 8. So it's getting down to what we think it is. Maybe congrats to the people that got it that. that yeah, like because, I mean, going through a key number of 10, you know, like that. But like I said, you don't know why that. That wasn't because, oh, the smart people went and got it first. That's not really how it works. Yeah. It moves because it fucking just moves. And there's money on some side, money on the other side. You can, you know, your synopsis as a capper is to, to make your assumptions and make your thoughts and you, you build on that the more you do it. That eight and a half makes a little bit more sense to me. But opening at 11 is like, the most red alert, red flag I've ever I've seen this year, maybe. Well, Alabama LSU went to open at 12 and a half. You're telling me that the gap is that similar between those four clubs? Same, yeah, same deal. Like that's that's a little weird. I I that makes a little bit more sense to me. Zimbabwe. Um, uh, but still, like a little. I, are we sure they're not better? Are we sure Tennessee's not better than Georgia? Because Georgia tried to go like all out air raid, kind of run up the score a little bit against Florida and just didn't work. Sets and Bennett threw two picks or they had two turnovers. He threw one pick. Like, are we sure that it's not better than them? Are we positive? I mean, I think Tennessee's better. I, I think so too. I, I, I do. I think they're a better team. I mean, I, with the exception of like the Alabama game last year in the national championship, a huge exception, by the way. 
Yes. Um, I don't love Kirby Smart's big game track record. Yeah. Um, Hypo runs a system that kind of negates his ability to do something stupid. Right. Uh, because it just they 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 play how they play. Um, you know, if they, I mean Bowers and Washington are incredible, and they're going to be mismatched nightmares for this team, but. I mean, Bennett is not winning a shootout against a Hooker. That is definitely not happening. Absolutely and not. I, I mean, Kirby's going to have an incredible game plan for this. I mean, he, he's been waiting for this one. That's just a fact. Uh, so, I mean, I get, like, Georgia being favored and getting over a touchdown, but over 10 points is, like, that, that's crazy to me. I, I think Tennessee is a better – is better. I think they're better than Georgia. I'm willing to say it. I think they are better than them, and they've proved it kind of week in, week out. Um, you know, you can say what you can say about the Bama game, but they won it. So guess what? No one cares. Uh, I don't know. I think they're better. Yeah, I'm with you. That's going to be a fascinating one. One I was all over this week, just quickly, not that we have a ton of thoughts on this, is I was all over the Missouri thing. I've had a tough year in Neil's picks, but South Carolina wins that weird game against A&M. They're top 25. They get like four and a half points. Mizzou had been close all year. I think that just was like, all right, South Carolina's not very good, and Mizzou finally put it all together. Like, those are both middling to I watched a I watched disgusting it, like, amount of this game. So did I, for whatever we, reason. Probably because the – Because every other game sucked. Yeah. And the other, I was like, I'm going to go watch SEC football. Um, South Carolina are frauds. Spencer Rattler is not good. Um, I didn't love anything they did in that game. Uh, Missouri on defense is good. They are a good defensive football team. They handled Georgia. They played very well against Florida. It, it's really been the offense that's killed them. And honestly, I like their offensive game plan in this game. Uh, I, it's the first time I've really been exposed to that quarterback. He's not a game breaker, but he's athletic. Yeah, he was he was good. Um. I know you and Neil and all them love to hate on Drinkwitz, and like I completely understand. Why I don't mind him; he's a dork, him. but I think he does an okay job. Um, he's recruited well. Yeah, that's not an easy place to recruit. To. Now he may lose all those guys in the portal if they don't continue to win. Um, they're not that bad. They are not that bad. I mean, they've had bad results. I mean, beating Vanderbilt by three is not impressive, though. I think Vanderbilt is, you know, has a pulse or close to one. Um, they could have easily beaten Florida on the road, uh, that they played a pretty bad game. They damn near should have beaten Georgia at home. I mean, they, they're not bad. Uh, I don't think South Carolina is good. I, don't I mean, they, A&M, like, gave them 17 points uh, to start off that game, and then they literally just did nothing for the rest of the time, and A&M probably could have won that game if they had put in Weidman sooner. Um, weird game. I watched too much of it. I watched way too much of that game. Arkansas, they took care of business against Auburn. Auburn plays hard. They just suck. The Harson thing is going to happen. This is more of a big picture conversation. They have apparently hired John Cohen uh, on purpose. Um, yeah, I saw that. Are we about to see Auburn be in this modern age of NIL? I've kind of had this theory. I may have thrown it at you. I don't really remember. Of You got to all be rowing in the same boat. Are we about to see Auburn down for a significant period of time because of the amount of dysfunction they have in two actually runs that thing? Cohen's not going in there if he gets the job, and that's actually true, and sorting that out. He does not have that kind of cachet. He does not have that kind of capital. Like He's not really a peach to deal with all the time. That's the baseball coach in him. But are we going to see a down Auburn for a long time because of a lack of pulling in the same direction and just ridiculous internal dysfunction? Because this seems like a mess that's not fixed by John Cohen. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't really know a whole lot about Cohen. Uh, just from the response, it seems like Mississippi State was not super disappointed about him leaving. Go on. Which, which I don't – I mean, you know, we're credit to Mississippi State for having a lot of these athletic directors take some pretty incredible jobs over the years. Um, Strickland, I think, went to Florida. Is he still there? Yeah, he's in Florida. Yeah, he's a good AD. That's a fact. Uh, Cohen, I don't know about it. Then they have one go to Alabama. Was it like? Yeah, Burn. Burn went before. Uh, Burn went before Strickland. No, no shit. Yeah, I, yeah, it, that's it, right. It, okay, it so, yeah, pretty good track record. Um, yeah. so maybe Auburn was like, oh, we'll just pull from these guys again. They've got pretty good thing going over there. Um, doesn't seem like any of state fans give a shit that he's leaving, which is. They were ready to have him out the door. Auburn tried to do the – I saw some Auburn friendly people were like, well, he just got an extension. I'm like, tell me you don't understand the Mississippi contract situation. Without yeah, with that, yeah, no, no shit. Um, yeah, I mean, if they don't get this coaching hire right with the way that Alabama is, the way that Georgia is, the way that Tennessee is, the way that Florida, I will tell you for a fact, will be. I bet Ole Miss to some degree. Ole Miss to, some, to an extent. I mean, I don't think they'll ever have the resources, but – they sure as hell are in a much better spot right now. They could be in real trouble. I mean, real, real trouble. I mean, shit, even Mississippi State, I don't think they're that good, but they're – They're not terrible. They're, they're going to be terrible next week. They've been better than Auburn. <laughs> I mean, uh, so, I mean, LSU, who's already owned them for like the past 10 years, that will not be changing anytime soon. So, yeah, they don't get this one right, and I'm not even sure who the right guy is. Uh, yeah, they could be in real trouble. It is now time for the fastest growing segment on American soil to cap off this ultra long pot. It is soccer corner. Wow. We have another week where Man City is not at the top. It is Arsenal again. It is still two points. Um, I'm just going to keep saying that until it changes, I guess. You got Tottenham rolling up in third. What has happened in the EPL? Did anything earth shattering happen this week? Uh, yeah, Liverpool lost again. They I lost to, they he lost to our great American team in Leeds. Um, a massive, 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 massive win for Leeds because Jesse Marsh was getting on – we kind of talked about it last week – on the edge of, of being out of there if he, if he had not gotten that thing rolling. So that was huge. Liverpool's second straight Premier League loss to a team that was in the relegation zone. Uh, not yeah, good not- there. They are uh, – not consistent. They're not the team they used to be, at least last year. Uh, they're still as dangerous as anybody, but they've shown throughout the season they will not be a title contender. Uh, they'll be a top four contender, but they will not be a title contender. Um, Chelsea lost to the old team. Uh, the new coach, they played Brighton. They got their ass kicked. Uh, Potter playing against his former team for the first time, got it shoved up their ass. I mean, for the they, they beat the old coach, huh? They beat the old coach, and they handled the old coach. Uh, it was not very competitive at all. Um, so good for Brighton. Tottenham came back from down, I think, 2-0 to Bournemouth to save a win, which was huge for them because had they not, United uh, and Newcastle would have jumped them. Uh, Newcastle wins again. They are now in fourth. Or did they win? They might have tied. Um, let me look that up real quick. Uh, da, da, da. Nope, they beat the dog shit out of Aston Villa and their new coach, 4-0. I didn't see that game. Uh, they're in this thing. I, I, the, as the weeks go on, the more I believe this team will be in contention for top four. Uh, oh, they're wow. not winning it. They are not winning it. But they're, they're going to be in this thing for real. And then United, once again, 1-0 win at home against a pretty good West Ham team, not a great West Ham team. Uh, they are just consistently getting better. 
they're having different guys step up. Uh, Ronaldo has been better since his, uh, you know, kind of suspension there for a game. Is that already over? Uh, his suspension's done? Yeah, he started in the Europa League and scored and then started again today uh, and, and was, was, was better. Uh, so they're, they're consistently getting better. They're, I think there's a chance this team is top four capable. The goal differential in the Premier League cracks me up because literally everyone, you got the top three, four teams that are plus anywhere from 26, like Man City, which to your, like, to your point probably leads to believe they're the best team, where they're like anywhere between 26 and plus 14. Everyone else in the league is somewhere between like negative seven to eight goals to plus five or six, with the exception of a couple. You have a Fulham team who was just even on the year and goal, sitting at a solid seventh place. They got a bunch of draws in there. I guess that makes sense. Bournemouth, who is like three or four out of the relegation zone, is a negative 16 goal to inferential. And then Liverpool is plus eight, but is in ninth place. What what what's the anomaly there? What's going well, on? It, it, Liverpool's is a little odd because they it, beat it Bournemouth like nine. Yeah, so that like shifts the analytics for both those teams. I mean, a nine-nil game is like that. You throws all you know expected goals out the window. So for both those teams, that that's a really weird result. That I mean w- would change the dynamic for both those teams pretty significantly. Um, but most of the other ones, I mean, United had like two really bad games to start out the year where they were like down goal differential like eight to one. So they kind of crawled back to get into the plus territory. Um, I don't think they're good enough to just beat the shit out of a lot of teams. I think they're definitely good enough to beat a lot of teams. Um, but some other one like Chelsea being plus two is like that, that team has some flaws, um, some pretty, some pretty real flaws, uh, despite how like deep they actually are from just a roster standpoint. Um, but other ones, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Wolverhampton's minus 13, Nottingham Forest is minus 20. Uh, not great. They lost not what five. You want. Wolverhampton only scored six, though. That's not what you want either. I, I've been on the Wolverhampton <laughs> score alert. They only have six goals on the year. I think it was four last week, so a huge offensive week for the Wanderers. They scored twice. Yeah, and then Arsenal won 5-0 today. So, I mean, they're just up there. I mean, they're, they are beating the teams they're supposed to beat, uh, and that's all you can ask for. City will win this league. I don't care what any whatever happens. They're going to win it. Um, it's just a matter of if, not when. Uh, but they haven't looked great. They've looked okay for their standard, but they, they, they will figure it out. The only thing that stands out is Fulham being in seventh. Are they a good club? What's the deal with those guys? Uh, really well coached. They have really good attacking players. Mitrovic is their striker from Serbia, and we'll talk about him more if we do a World Cup preview, which – might be coming up soon. That's starting. Oh yeah, um, they're just solid. They they just they're a solid back. They've got uh, Tim Ream plays for them and Anthony Robinson, two Americans in their defense, who have been really really solid for them. They're just good. They 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 win home home matches. They take points on the road. Uh, they, they've invested a ton of money into that team, like real money. They've bought like real players. Um, so th- yeah, they've just been really solid. This has been the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is Soccer Corner. Weldon Rodenberg, I appreciate the time as always, my friend, and we'll holler at you next week. All right, that is our show. If you made it to the end, I appreciate you making this podcast a part of your day. We'll be back at it with Ryan Buchanan in the midweek and then probably something a little different with the bye week coming in. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like yet, but we'll get to cook in and have plenty of podcast content for you. I can promise you that.
Y'all have a great start to your week, and we will talk to you on Wednesday.